Hello folks, this is Watchstar podcast series where we talk to the top class achievers in tech and take a peek at the secrets to their excellence. Hello folks, this is Watchstar podcast where we talk to the top class achievers in tech. I am your host Manoj Rao and I'm so excited about the show today because our guest is none other than James Gosling, the inventor of Java programming language. James has ushered us into the era of digital age by building several compilers, window managers, email clients and tons of other utilities. He has worked recently on building wave glider the autonomous ocean robot uh, now he's working on pushing the envelope of cloud computing further bit by bit pun intended uh, in a sense if there was something path breaking happening in tech it meant james was around what's his secret we dive into all sorts of discussions regarding the tools he uses uh, his tricks daily habits what makes him innovative uh, how he approaches big problems and much much more i'm so excited about this episode today hope you enjoy this as much as i loved making this as well so without further ado let's welcome james gosling so how would you introduce yourself to somebody who does not know about your work um i'm james gosling general purpose hacker general purpose hacking is a broad term and how would you describe what attracts you to take up the work i mean i like doing things that are fun that's kind of what what drags me i've i you know i think i think the the really fun jobs for me have always been sort of code monkey for scientists you know that you know my my very first job was was um doing software for a bunch of physicists and um that's kind of that kind of imprinted me on on doing that kind of work my previous job was you know doing doing robots to to help marine scientists and you know that was a whole lot of fun but i've also spent a lot of time building building tools for people that you know i have this 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 sort of standard pattern where it's like you know i'm trying to build something but it's it's a pain and life would be easier if i had a tool for that so then i start building a tool for that and then in the midst of building that tool i go you know life would be easier if i had a tool for that and then i do a tool for that and 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 sometimes it feels like i'm you know 27 levels of recursion down in the you know wouldn't it be cool if there was a tool for that i've completely forgotten what i started out to do and someday i'll you know pop out of the recursion can you tell us what got you into programming and what attracted you to this field when you started out you know when i was a when i was a kid um you know i wanted to like learn electronics and that kind of stuff but we didn't have enough money that i could afford you know, like parts you know bits of wire and that you know i was always doing it with like dumpster diving for old tv sets and that was sort of a pain and at some point uh, a friend of my dad's took me on a tour of the the university of calgary which was a couple of miles away and we wandered through the through through the place sort of in general but as we walked through the the data center there were all these computers and flashing lights and people doing stuff that seemed really really cool and So then I started like just wandering over there myself because we only lived a couple miles away. Um and I started, you know, when I was in junior high school, I started like breaking in and 
um, you know, dumpster diving to get account IDs. <laughs> okay. And I and I, I sort of taught myself how to program when I was in uh, junior high school or, or middle school in America. Okay, I'm curious. Uh, how did you get into the system? And also, I'm guessing you were not of the right age yet to be doing this. Yeah, but I was always I was always a big kid, and you know, I I'm sure that people figured out that I that I wasn't that I was just like a, a junior high school kid. But they mostly just let me let me do it. You know, I got to know to know some of the students and met some folks who were doing work on this project in the physics department and then you know they offered me a job and i don't know whether it was just that i was really really cheap yeah so i i, I worked there for several years and then eventually went actually enrolled in college okay so you were a young kid at this point when software engineering was not a very common professional choice so what got you to pursue this it, it, it was just just wandering through and seeing this stuff and going wow this is really cool and I mean, you know, definitely a part of it was that writing writing software consumed no physical resources, so it it it, it costs zero money, and you know, when you don't have money, that's a that's a really big deal, you know, and and being able to build like really really complex things uh, really quickly compared to what you could do with wires and breadboards and all of that, you know, that was a big deal for me, and then. You know, discovering that it was actually useful to people, you know, that and then, you know, once you start getting, you know, these these raw data feeds off of satellites and you realize you can actually turn that into something that makes sense is really cool and really addicting. Okay, so what is the first machine you used and uh, what is it like? I started started out on uh, a machine called a PDP-8. From digital equipment, um, the PDP-8 standard amount of RAM was a an incredible 4K. <laughs> the The processor was at about a third of a MIP, so it, it it had about the same compute power as today's smart cards. Well, actually, it has about the the same compute power as as smart cards like 15 years ago um these days you can do pretty good crypto on a smart card you know once you you know that you know you can do some pretty amazing things on a machine with almost nothing you know i i learned to learn to program in a place where every cycle was precious that's a that's a habit i've never managed to kick you know you know one of my one of one of my bad habits is premature optimization. Okay, I read somewhere that you once had to port your advisor's code uh, and optimize it, and in order to be able to do that, you had to port it to a different architecture, uh, which is how you came up with the original bytecode uh, idea. Uh, can you tell us what the real story is? Once upon a time, there was this little computer company called Perk per Computers, P-E-R-Q. And they made a, it was like a really early personal workstation. You know, they were trying to do something kind of like a, a Xerox Alto, but something that people could actually buy. And they were a bunch of electrical engineers and they didn't have much money or anything like that. And they didn't want to hire anybody that did software. So they knew that they could get a compiler for free, which was the UCSD Pascal. And it's P machine. So they they decided to do a hardware version of the the UCSD Pascal runtime. And 
um, made some changes, but mostly they, they, they just wanted to be able to use the UCSD Pascal compiler. And that was all fine. And uh, Carnegie Mellon had a bunch of these machines that people wrote quite a lot of software on. And, and not much Pascal code, but because the Pascal P code was uh, like the back end, you know, what compiler, what tools they used all generated P code. So most of the software that was done at CMU was was Lisp, and there were various Lisp implementations. But the company failed, and CMU had all the all this software. So I, so I had two thesis advisors there who were like co advisors, and one of them was this guy named Raj Reddy, who was quite a character. But he asked me if I could figure out a way to to port some of this software over. I think he. I think what he had in mind was for me to like, up, you know, you know, fix the Pascal compiler so it would generate you know, like like Vax assembly code or something. And I was like, and I and I sort of sort of left after 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 he asked me to do that, and I was like walking away and going, you know, there's like not much Pascal code. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we got to actually solve this problem. And so I, I was like staring at stuff and, and realized that it wouldn't be too hard to write a code generator um, that took the P code as input. And as I started playing with that, ended up working out really well because I was actually generating better machine code from the P code. Um, by the time I was done, better machine code from the P code than the C compiler was gen than the C compiler was generating. Now, admittedly, this was the you know the 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 C compiler of the late seventies, not today's C compiler, and that was that 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 was just like cool. And I spent some time you know thinking about you know what was it about P code that made this possible, um, and that was just kind of amusing. And then I I kind of like forgot about that, you know, because that was just like a fun thing. And then when we started this project at Sun in the 1991, we were, you know, one of the things at the very beginning of the project was talking about, was talking to a whole lot of like consumer electronics companies mm -hmm. who were, and just other folks who were doing a lot of embedded software. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was really disturbing them was how they had a really, really hard time with the fact that there were all these different processors that they could use, mm. all different instruction sets. You know, especially when you talk to like, like the purchasing folks were like, you know, if I decide that this manufacturer of resistors is gouging me, I can buy resistors from somebody else. But that doesn't happen with processors. You know, the you know processors are inherently a single source thing. And this was a remarkably big deal for them. And, you know, that was sort of one of a, a long list of, of issues. And, you know, as we were trying to do this project to, it was more, more sort of a self-education thing about, you know, and it was a group of us. So we did this, did this project that ended up us building a, building a prototype. But part of it was sort of realizing that, that, you know, there was like a half a dozen different problems that folks were having that came straight out of the, the sort of software methodology that was inherent in the C compiler and the way that people were doing work. And so my part of that project was to go off and think about, you know, the software engineering 
problem and the 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 need to do to have you know, to be able to treat processor chips as commodities was it was something I spent a bunch of time thinking about. And then I remembered this experience that I had had with the perk machines and the Ben P code. So I went, hmm, okay, that actually kind of works. You know, and, and, and at the time there was there was a lot of of um, debate about what people called a, an architecture neutral distribution format. And what people were were trying to do was to come up with a format that would really represent like like the parse tree. And one of the things I I, I realized back then was that, you know, if you look at uh, like P-code sideways, it's roughly a parse tree in reverse Polish notation. So, you know, it's like like you've got a calculator and you you type, you know, 23, enter 47, enter plus. Well, that's either, you know, commands that say do this or it's a it's a parse tree, you know, with a plus note. And and it's like, oh, you know, and and, well, and and, and that's and, and that was kind of you know, the way that the translator worked that I had done in grad school. And and I went, you know, this is like compact and simple. And, and most importantly, the view of the intermediate code as a as an executable language gave you a, sort of a different way to express the semantics. Mm. It's sort of a more closed and focused way of, of expressing the semantics of the tree. Um, and, and so since the, the sort of machine code and, and, you know, semantic graph were essentially duels of each other, that was like, hmm, okay. And that worked really well for me. So when you were making this sort of correlation between intermediate language and the semantic graph, uh, I presume you were in grad school. Some of the duality thing I had sort of realized when I was in grad school, but it wasn't until 12 years later when I was at Sun that I kind of went, oh, this isn't just cool, it's actually useful. You started or been part of several famous projects in the past, but arguably you're most well known for your work in Java, so which is now running on billion over billion uh, devices and uh, processors. So what sort of scale did you have in mind when you started out writing the compiler or cross compiler in this case? And what sort of problems did you want to solve uh, initially? Well, I mean, certainly, um, you know, by the time I started Java, I'd been writing C code for about 15 years. And there were a whole pile of things that were making life really had always made life really awkward for me. Mm. You know, things like, you know, all of the address corruption issues with that, that arise from the fact that, that pointers are just numbers and you can cast back and forth between them and you can do arithmetic on them. And, you know, part of that is really cool. And, and part of that is, you know, playing with naked nuclear weapons. Yeah. That reminds me of a quote. Can't remember who it was. Uh, uh, somebody said that C is basically memory with syntactic sugar. It is, it is, right? And, and, and part of that is, is really cool and fascinating, right? But, and, and it's really, really useful when you're doing stuff like low-level device drivers. But when you're trying to build something that's sort of large and sophisticated and you realize that you're spending like at least half of your time debugging stupid memory corruption bugs, you, you, you just go... No, right. You know, even even you know back then, it was really clear that the number one source of security problems on the internet was just bugs. 
I mean, there are lots of people who would like to argue that, you know, it's, it's not bugs. It's, you know, people not doing crypto properly. But no, it's bugs. You know, just plain ordinary bugs are, you know, security problem number one on the Internet still are. And 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 like the, you know, amongst all the bugs, you know, it's still the case that the number one one is buffer overflow problems. Yeah. It's, it's sort of neck and neck between, you know, buffer overflow and SQL injection hacks. <laughs> I mean, there's so many of them, right? But they're all they're all bugs, right? And 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 so you know, like in Java, you cannot turn off array bounds checking, right? And that's and that's all about a security issues. And you know, one of the important things about that. Um, you know, people often go, every time I do a sub I, it doesn't do bounce checks. It's like, well, it has to appear that it's doing bounce checks, right? Modern compilers, they improve away almost all bounce checks. And, you know, so you get, get all the security of bounce checks without the performance hit. Um, and, you know, I, I sweated a long time in the early 90s on, you know, proving to myself that that one in particular could be done, you know, between null checks and bounds checks. Um, you know, the, the the overhead of doing those is vanishingly small given what the compilers can do. Yes, security bugs are just bugs that common programmer faces on a day-to-day basis. And I guess the seriousness of them is compounded when they're magnified and manifested over the scale of internet. Uh, but what was not simple or not uh, common about was your previous gig, uh, which was programming oceanic robots, which went into the, basically which are robots which go into the deep end of the ocean to collect data. How is this experience, uh, given all the experiences in programming uh, that you've done over the years, uh, how is this experience programming these kind of strange robots uh, different or what was unique about them? There isn't it like a generic answer because all robots are different. You know, there are robots that people do for PhD theses, which have to work exactly once. <laughs> or like in, 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 in my case, it was a robot that had to work day in, day out, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, month after month hundreds if not thousands of miles away from the nearest human a good chunk of the time being out of communication with any human and so the the robot is truly on its own and yet it it has to continue collecting data the times when life is hardest is also the times when the data is most precious right so you know the you know for the mechanical engineers the the um, the goal was you know must survive a category five hurricane. Uh, believe it or not, there are places on this planet that are worse than a category five hurricane. Those are entertaining, you know, and so it's this really interesting problem that that, that sort of crosses you know mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and software. You know, one of the things that was important to me in the Java design was to be able to. Um, localized failures. So, so if you look at at the way that try catch and pointers work, um, you can think of them as as providing sort of a a way of, of encapsulating a region of software um, such that if failures occur there, it doesn't cause too much shrapnel in the rest of the the rest of the software. Um, so if you're really careful about being defensive, you know, things can fail and yet you can still carry on, right? I mean, it's it, it's somewhat standard 
for people to write software that if something goes wrong, they just roll over and die. You know, the process exits, right? And then you kind of expect some some higher God, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and this is this is kind of the way clouds cloud software tends to work, right? Yeah. Is, is the, the, the cloud really only functions because there's this huge cadre of highly trained humans mm-hmm. who, who look at the shrapnel that came out of this explosion and go, Ah, that went wrong. That went wrong. That went wrong. Um, and and then then fix it all up. Um, in the case of a robot that has to be sort of persistent and durable, it kind of has to do that on its own. Now it may not be able to actually analyze what went wrong in any, in general at all, but but often you can realize that you know this component was failing, and it may be you know you know you know you, you try as much as you can to test software, but you know there's always crazy stuff that happens um, that that you know you never imagined in testing. You know you know you you know you're doing something simple like reading the output from a compass. You think what can go wrong? It's a compass. Just tell me where we're where we're pointed. But you know compasses are fickle fickle thing. Um, they they depend on the local magnetic field. If the local magnetic field is funny um the the compass can be can really misbehave in ways that you can't detect very very easily um similar things with like gps units gps units are notoriously bizarre they you know it's it's, it's like every manufacturer's gps is fails in different ways and like we would have you know of the of the things that failed frequently and gps's were the number one things we we would have redundant gps's Right, we the robots never had fewer than, than than three GPSs, and all the GPSs were from different manufacturers. They all had their antennas in different places, you know, just as much paranoia as possible, as good of a consensus as possible. Yeah, you know, so so then the job of the software is you know keeping tabs of all the of all the redundant devices, figuring out. You know, it, you know, it had this general purpose mechanism for trying to establish the 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 highest quality functioning device. You know, so it, the highest quality functioning compass, the highest quality functioning GPS, the highest quality functioning radio, um, yada yada yada. And and then and then you're also trying to run all of the instruments, right? <laughs> you know, and 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 yet, you know, you you do that and. You can make things pretty damn, pretty damn reliable, but you always end up with um, things that are just, just too bizarre. So um, one of the things that I like doing is building systems that have a plug-in architecture. So, you know, like, like the way that app servers, you can, you can sort of plug in servlets. You can use that general pattern over and over and over again. And, and it's, it's easily one of my favorite patterns. Mm. Um, so, you know, that robot has a plug-in pattern mm. and, and you can actually install software mm. um, on the fly. And, you know, so, you know, if the robot is at the, you know, we actually had a fleet of them at the north end of Baffin Bay, they were misbehaving because the compasses were not behaving as the electrical engineers asserted that they should. And everything was failing. They were doing the drunkard's walk. So, you know, a bunch of software head scratching and uploading 
plugins over the satellite link. Um, and, 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 you know, rather than doing, you know, the, the, the problem with doing like a patch the way people do it in C code, where you take a, like, like an A dot out file and you jigger bytes in it, you know, that, that ends up meaning that you have to reboot it and you really are doing byte by byte surgery. Um, the nice thing with, with a plugin is that the, you know, a plugin is a cleanly encapsulated unit and, and you can, cleanly sort of install it in existing running software. The compasses in Baffin Bay problem was uh, that was the first time we we ever um, installed software over over a satellite link. And that happened like three years ago and didn't have to reboot the machines, didn't have to, you know, the data collection kept going. They were just, you know, drunken sailors collecting data but and then they just went okay and they went went off and then they and they started behaving correctly you know so so you know in that case it's one where everything on the robot was behaving correctly except that the compass was giving it bad advice and you know it was doing silly things with the rudder and and so you you patch that piece of software and away she goes yeah on somewhat of a related topic, uh, because currently it's uh, all over the news, uh, you know, Isaac Asimov Foundation series, uh, AI taking over the world, destroying mankind, uh, what our future is going to be if AI continues as it is and robots are going to rule the world. Where do you stand on this topic? They're, 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 they're sort of anthropomorphizing. They're, they're, they're giving robots um you know like 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 a, a soul and identity and 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 saying you know this this robot has freedom of choice mm-hmm. it's not you know uh, computers are tools they're built by humans they do what humans tell them to do um and if robots took over the world that would only because be because humans told them to Right. And humans can be mind numbingly stupid and, you know, not aware of the, the sort of unforeseen consequences of, uh, of their actions. You know, so, you know, if, if, if somebody was to give a flying drone um, autonomous kill authority and there was a bug in the target detection algorithm, that would be really bad. But, you know, it's not like the robot decided to go off and kill people at random. It's it's that a morally bankrupt management and whatever gave a machine autonomous kill authority. And then probably some engineer made a mistake. But, you know, if you make a, make a, you know, a simple mistake in a place that has enormous consequences, life could be bad. So, no, robots aren't going to take over the world, but stupid people sure might destroy it. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the White Star Podcast Series. And I have one small request. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast sourcer or head on over to the White Star Podcast website, which is www.whitestarpodcast.com or www.mycpu.org for more audio and articles. Thank you. Until next time. Bye-bye.